Well, we're uh, in the midway through a, a series called Live No Lies, uh, based from a book of the same name by John Mark Comer. A number of folks are reading it, which is really great. Basically exploring this idea that um, if life feels like a bit of a battle, <laughs> it is. It really is. Uh, and every single one of us um, uh, living in this space where we are um, uh, distracted by phones and uh, <laughs> that is... <laughs> Um, I've got a squirrel brain, so that stuff is not great for my uh, attention. Um, we are, we're swimming in this world, uh, and, and all swirling around us is this war um, where the devil's trying to whisper lies to us. So cool hearing Miriam and just some of the, the you know, this truth that Jesus has brought into her heart and mind. Um, and, uh, and then there's this battle of the flesh, which we're going to talk about today and next week. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the wider world that we, we're in. Uh, and basically the idea is that the enemy, um, his main weapon is using lies, deceitful ideas. And they, and they can even feel almost true. And they're very easy to believe. Um, and uh, and, that's, and like the, the journey that we're all in is to root those things out and replace them with the truth. Um, but these deceitful ideas play to our disordered desires of our flesh that we're going to talk about next couple of Sundays. And then they become very normalized in a sinful society. It's just normal to do all sorts of stuff. That's actually very damaging to a human soul. And, uh, and so that's the premise of the book. And it's actually um, a conversation that's been happening for thousands of years in the truth, like, in the church. There's just been this acknowledgement, man, we're in this war. Uh, and so it's good there's Rage Against Machines, Zach Rocha says, to know your enemy. Uh, and as you uh, and Jesus wants to see us flourish, so it's not like, oh man, this is a real war, and maybe we'll win away. No, if you're in Christ and you apply uh, scriptures and truth to your life, then man, it's just your soul flourishes, and that's what I'm all about. That's what we're all pursuing here, right? Um, so now we're going to look at uh, uh, for the next couple of Sundays this war that we've all got with the flesh. Oh, I've got so many examples. I'm going to tell you about my own life. Ooh, uh, the human experience of the battle of the flesh. Before we, we um, dive into some scriptures that are super comforting and encouraging about the human condition, it's important to note that at your core, um, you've been created by a good God who created humankind in Genesis 1.26, and he blesses what he created, he, the humans that he's created, and he says, this is very good. And the, the story of the Bible doesn't start with the fall, the story of the Bible starts with a good God creating good people and saying, it's very, very good. That's your identity. You're good. You're made in the image of a good God. The condition that we all have, however, is a fallen sinful nature. We've got to separate those two things. So we've got to, we're, we're, we're all in a program of recovery from the condition of a sinful nature that we've got. But we're actually at our core good. It's important that's deep in your soul. Like you are, you're good. You're made in the image of a good God who loves you and who blesses you. But we're all, uh, we're all got this sinful condition, this, this evil that's in rebellion against God. And the Bible uses this idea of the flesh. It uses the word often the flesh to talk about this. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it talks about the sinful part of us. And 
uh, we're in recovery from this broken condition. And this is what the Bible calls sanctification or discipleship to Jesus. Is this whole like learning to, to, for that broken, sinful part of us that's in rebellion against God, that, that we work through some deep stuff to come into places of healing and wholeness so that we're in right relationship with God and with the world around us and our soul can flourish. We're in that, that's the journey of our life. And it's good to be intentional about that. The battle that we're in, this is honestly, I think it's one of my favorite ever scriptures in the Bible. The the battle that we're in, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. I love this. We know that the law is spiritual uh, and that uh, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Here we go. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. Ah. There in black and white is the human condition. I just honestly, every time I read that, I'm like, you got it, Paul. Oh my gosh, spot on, mate. How often is that the case? It's like, no more cream buns, Harvey. No more. You're getting very piggy. There's no more. And it's like, why am I at the trough again, eating the cream buns? Uh, and and like, how often is that the case where there's this frustration where you're like, why do I do that? You know, I've been, sanct- I've been a Christian a long time. I'm working on the sanctification thing. But when I'm in the car, I'm very nervous. I'm behind a parishioner because I'm really unsanctified. I had this little freak out a couple of days ago. I was like, oh dear, what if that's someone in my church? And I'm right up their grill going, it's meant to be 100, not 85, along the road past the airport. It is very clearly marked 100. And I live here and I like to go there. So I'm trying to give you a gentle encouragement to speed up from 85 to 100. And then it's like, why do I keep doing this? I've been working on this for years. Where is the peace of God in my little Ford Tigu- in my Tigu- one Volkswagen must be nice. Uh, so whether it's our temper or having that one or two drinks too many or spending money we don't have or looking at porn or the extra cream buns or the gossip or all of that stuff, like, man, isn't this our experience so often? Like, man, I don't want to do that, but then I wind up doing the thing I don't want to do. And, and then he goes a few verses down. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I also there's other law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Again, just many times where I've been in a shame cycle, I've read that and just gone, thank you, I'm not the only one that feels like that at times. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What hope we have in Jesus. What hope we have in Jesus. That even though we're at war with the flesh that wants to wreck us and have short-term pleasure at the cost of all sorts of stuff long-term, thank God that Jesus is with us and he's for us. And this is a journey that we're all on. And it's, this is, oh, again, I love that we take communion every week. It's because I want this to be a place where the gospel of grace is lifted up every Sunday. And that it doesn't matter how naughty you've been, you can come to the table. We boldly run to the throne of grace in the hour of need. That's good Christianity. It's not minimizing it and trying to be all awesome in front of each other. It's actually acknowledging we need His grace and mercy. Thanks be to God for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul unpacks this a bit more. As for you, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Epic what's going on in this passage. You'll notice in here that Paul talks about these three enemies of the soul. He talks about the world, that we can follow the ways of this world. He talks about the flesh following its desires and thoughts. And he talks about the devil, he uses the term, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. These are the three enemies of the soul that we're all swimming in. And, uh, and we've talked about how the devil uses lies in the last couple of weeks uh, we, let's look about the flesh. The, the word that Paul uses here in the New Testament uh, is this Greek word sarx. And, and like in English, um, words can have multiple meanings. You can play squash and you can eat a squash, or you can squash a bug. I mean, there's a whole lot of words. And same word with this word sarx when it comes to the flesh. Uh, it can be used in terms of our body. It can be used in terms of our ethnicity. But um, what Paul's talking about here when he talks about the flesh is what he's talking about when he says it's this part of us that it's like gratifying the cravings of our flesh. It's like this animalistic craving in our body that's apart from God. In Romans 7 verse 5, he de defined it as our sinful passions. So like we all have these desires and some of them are higher and nobler and lead to life and freedom and peace. And there's others that are lower and more animalistic and lead to death and slavery and fear. John Mark Comer in his book describes it like this. It's talking about the flesh. Basically, it's our base primal animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sensuality, as in sex and food, but also to pleasure in general, as well as our own instincts for survival and domination and the need for control. Desires that are in all of us. In spite of the humanistic atmosphere all around us constantly telling us that we're good, we all know that we have these desires that we don't know what to do with. Amen. Now, one of the biggest lies that the devil's thrown into the cultural mix is this idea that, it's like, well, how do you navigate through life? And, and basically, our cultural wisdom is you need to be true to yourself. Do what feels good, follow the heart, just do it. As long as it doesn't harm anyone, then it's fine. And basically what our wider world has done is made the self, not God or Scripture, like the new locus of authority in Western culture. It's like whatever's true for you, you should do. Um, I saw this, you know, two seconds online and this sort of stuff comes up, you know. Be passionate yourself and don't think of a have fun. Remember, right, true and real to yourself. I'm like, well, the problem is like psychologists are like, it's just not that simple in terms of being true to yourself. Like that, for starters, which self? Now, this might sound like psychobabble, and, and, um, but so, so he, this is, for example, next slide, Ramon. There's a bunch of selves in me that want some stuff. So there's, there's a part of me that wants to be that guy so badly, not just for the pride of looking good, but literally it's tough to surf when you've got a big puku. I get unfit. Um, and I went out surfing on Monday, and I was just so gutted at how unfit I was. And the waves were epic. Hey, <laughs> that was meant to be a next slide. Go back. Um, that was meant to be my, my big punchline, Ramon, about, who, about who's won. But thanks. The other self in me 
wants Burger King real badly, right? And as you've already seen, you, you can work out which self is winning currently in terms of the battle. Um, and if you're listening to this on a podcast, the audio podcast, you're missing out. We also have a YouTube channel and this pastor's choosing to put himself right out there this morning. Um, so there's this whole, like, there's a whole, yeah, there we go. <laughs> whole, it's like, which self are you going to be true to in any given moment? Could be, you, you just don't know where you're going to land. The self is a terrible guide for the good life because it's conflicted in its desires. And so the secular idea of that um, we just need to be true to ourselves, I mentioned this a couple of Sundays ago with David Ferry, who's been very uh, true to the secular um, vision. It's like, man, you know, we're all just a bunch of chemicals in a fatty mush dying in this big meat suit, you know, and it's like that's kind of all we are is this kind of happy accident in the cosmos. Freud, uh, two slides please, Ramon, and rather quickly please, there we go. Um, so Freud, uh, which has been this huge thing that shaped our culture, has basically got this idea human beings are animals run by instinctual desires for pleasures, and when we repress these desires, we suffer. So that's kind of been like this big narrative in our world. It's like, man, you can't repress. Just let it go, baby, and see where it takes you. Follow your heart. See what feels good. Kramer, in fact, um, in Seinfeld, basically uh, had this whole episode of like, basically like, here's to feeling good all the time. Like, how can I just have pleasure constantly? And so he's trying to smoke and drink, and it's just true, great Seinfeld kind of thing. But it's, it's Freud outworked in popular culture. Again, we're swimming in this world where that's just a funny ha-ha, but it just gets in people's psyches. Oh, like that, you just, you've got to be true to yourself. Augustine, however, who's an early church father, had a different idea. Um, go back, sorry, uh, Ramon. Um, there we go. And basically, he's like, human beings are image bearers, which I pointed to in Genesis 1. We're created in love to love God and each other, but when we disorder our, li- our loves and let them run amok, we begin to suffer. So in the Augustinian view, the problem of the human condition isn't that we don't love, it's that we either love the wrong things or that we love the right things in the wrong place, in the wrong order. For example, it's not bad to love your child or your children. I I love my children. But if I love my child more than God, that's a disordered desire. And will lead to brokenness for everyone involved in terms of a codependent relationship and all sorts of funky stuff that'll get out worked through that. Um, it's not bad to love sex. God created. Hey, I feel like that should be like. Hey, God created us as sexual beings and commanded us to increase in number. Hallelujah! And we're doing a good job of that in Bay Vineyard, by the way. There's a real anointing on our life in terms of um, the life of our church. In terms of babies, crikey. For Charlotte, on behalf of Charlotte, if we can dial back the, um, uh, can we just dial back the increase in number? It'd be great. But here's what's happened in our society. Sex has become a pseudo-god that we look to for identity and belonging in terms of community or life satisfaction. Um, the orgasm has been idolised extremely. <laughs> I never thought to hear a pastor say that. It's <laughs> a disordered desire in our wider culture. And so our culture is actually constantly in the pursuit of short-term pleasure. Um, And in doing so, relinquishes long-term happiness. This is, I've said this a few times, the devil's major lie is that there's no long-term consequences to the choice of short-term pleasure. It's one of his biggest lies. And it's because often you don't get those consequences immediately. They are down the road. And that's why our culture's messed up. 
mental health's all over the map. It's those long-term consequences that start kicking in in terms of what happens to the human soul. You're wise if you recognise that pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. John Mark says it like this. Pleasure is about the next hit to feel good in the moment. Happiness is about contentment over the long haul, a sense that my life is rich and satisfying as it is. Pleasure is about want. Happiness is about freedom from want. Most ethicists define happiness as a kind of contentment, a soul-level satisfaction where you are grateful for what is rather than grasping for more, which means happiness comes as the result of disciplined desire. In every area of life, from sex to diet to money, happiness or the good life is what happens after you discipline your desires. You have to curb some of your wants and cultivate others. This is what the New Testament writers were referring to when they wrote about the inner tug of war between the spirit and the flesh. Oh, that's some good wisdom, eh? And I've said this before, our strongest desires are not often our deepest desires. Our strongest desires in the moment are normally not our deepest desires. I have a deep desire, Ryan was talking about this last week, a deep desire to live a life of prayer, but I have a really also a strong desire to stay up late watching Netflix. I have a deep, deep desire that I want to be like Christ, but also have the strong desire in my flesh to do whatever I want. There's deep desire to live a life of integrity, and then there's a strong desire in my flesh to gossip sometimes. This deep desire to be generous and wise with my money. And in my flesh, I really want to buy that. Next thing. And I want no restrictions on my finances. Again, this is phenomenal, this next quote, again from the book. Our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love, are often sabotaged by the strongest surface-level desires of our flesh. And this is exacerbated by a culture where the widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not crucify them. But in reality, be true to yourself for some of the worst advice anybody could give you. And here's why. Giving into the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery and, in a worst-case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. I reckon that is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard when it comes to the world in which we swim in. And I don't know about you, but I feel that war inside of me, big time. So Paul really hits this hard in Galatians chapter 5. And he opens this with this chestnut. He says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Later in verse 13, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Freedom's super easy to abuse. And when we abuse freedom, we negate love. So it's not just freedom from sin, but it's freedom to choose the good of another person. So again, our secular vision is freedom, is basically this, freedom is, to, is freedom is you can do whatever you want. You can enjoy, pursue, sleep with, buy, sell, do whatever you want, that's real freedom. And restraint is the opposite of freedom according to our society. But in the New Testament, this isn't freedom, it's the opposite, this is slavery. You are run by your desires. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. 
But Paul is speaking here about true freedom. And what is that freedom? Paul says in the next line, rather the serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. If we go to the next slide, this, I, I think this is incredibly helpful. The desires of our flesh is like, this is what I want. I want to want to And that doesn't lead to freedom. It actually leads to slavery. From a guy that struggled with porn in his 20s, I know that this is true. You're not in control of it anymore. It's in control of you. That's slavery. And it's a slippery slope. This is where the devil's very, very sneaky. It's a slippery slope. Um, But the desires of the Spirit, when we cultivate that, it's like, God, what do you want for me right now? And what, what is it that my neighbor needs or my wife needs or my family needs or my children needs or my church needs or my brothers need? Like what is it and how can I serve and, and, be, and, and be in that space? And that's true freedom. And is it, do not use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. This is true freedom. Now we're all at varying places walking out of Egypt. This is why the metaphor and the story of the Exodus is so powerful. We're all... Varying distances from Pharaoh. But if God is for us, let's continue to walk into freedom together. And the evidence that you are free is that you do what God wants and you do what's good for your neighbor or your wife or your husband or your friends. You live a life of blessing. This is what true freedom looks like. In John 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And here's again one of the tricky things in the church is that we've kind of had this vibe because we all like good preaching. I hope this morning satisfying that uh, craving of the flesh. But, but here's the thing, we love, we love being titillated with truth and wisdom. And it's like, and, and of course we do. But here's the thing, resonance does not equal obedience. And, and, and obedience isn't even whether you agree or not with it. So we could be like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but obedience means you actually do it. Like That's what obedience means. Whether you agree with it or not, sometimes Jesus calls us to things, particularly um, if you're new to the faith and you're like, what the heck's all the sexual purity stuff about? Even if you don't understand it, do it. And as you journey with Jesus, you'll get the wisdom as to why it's such a smart idea. Whatever, insert whatever issue you're wrestling with here. Sometimes we do it even if we're a little bit perplexed about it. We choose to be obedient because we say, He is the King, He is Lord, and we are in His kingdom. And so, uh, and, and again, underline that, remember, every single thing that Jesus calls us to is motivated by love and will lead us to life. Everything, no exceptions, is motivated by a heart of pure love and will lead us to life as we do that. So to grow in wisdom and self-discipline and self-control, back in the day, um, we talked about mental mind maps. You know how we all have these mental mind maps? Again, if you missed the last couple of weeks, you should be listening to the podcast to catch up because I'm not going to fill in that whole thing. But, but how do you inherit? Like, so for back in the day, um, we'd come under sources of authority to help us build those mental mind maps about how to live wisely and well. In the tribe or in the village, there'll be elders and they'll pass down wisdom. And it's like, why would you want to be an idiot when you can learn wisdom from the elders who have already lived a life? And they've picked that and there's an accruement of wisdom and we learn that and we come under that authority. 
Um, and then as we come to faith, ideally Jesus as a trusted but external authority source and the teachings that we get as they come through the New Testament, we can apply that to our lives. But again, in our world, we, we swim in this incredible arrogance that says, I don't need this. I'll figure it out on my own. And we hate anyone telling us what to do. Government, again, I'm going to trigger a few people here. Um, you know, we just wig out. It, like, we just don't want to be told what to do because we think that freedom means I can do whatever I want. That's where a secular vision of freedom has permeated and a lie has permeated our mental mind maps. True freedom's coming under authority and learning how to live wisely and well. So again, John Mark, for those who follow Jesus, we choose of our own free will to place ourselves under external authority. That of God himself as mediated through scripture and to a degree our church. We do this because we believe authority is not inherently oppressive, but similar to parenting for children, a training ground for us to learn how to master our flesh and grow into people of love. Through trusted sources of authority, we get access to reality. And when authority is used well with wisdom and compassion, we grow and mature into the kind of people who live in congruence with reality. And as a result, we have the capacity to handle even more freedom. And so... Um, Paul says it like this in Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Our culture is like, do whatever you want. <laughs> Paul says, no, that will mess you up, destroy your soul. Don't do whatever you want. These deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires in our flesh and normalized in some full of society, that's going to screw up your soul. <laughs> Don't do that. Paul then goes through, he's like, well, what does the flesh look like? What are the things that you shouldn't do? He gives a great list. <laughs> this is awesome. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Let's just call it Tinder and a hookup culture at our local pubs. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Twitter, cancel culture, most of the news. <laughs> Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. From office gossip and tribes forming in workplaces through to political tribes that have become religious in our day and age. Envy. That's the internet advertising and the great envy generator that is Instagram. Drunkenness, orgies and the like. Well, that's every streaming device piped in through your Apple TV box right now. Yay! We swim in this world. We swim in this world. I love that whole thing Ryan was talking about last week, the filth filter. If you have to clean out a filth filter, you'll be cleaning it out every half hour. Oh, it's just great. You know, it's like that filter's getting hammered in the world that we swim in these days. I mean, Paul's like, this is the stuff where people just go along with the flesh and this is where we land. But of course he doesn't stop there. It's like, what's the alternative? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love it. People who are loving, who are joyful, who are unanxious, unhurried, who are helpful, who are deeply good souls, that's God's desire for you. That's his desire. I mean, I've talked about this so much, particularly the first three, love, joy, and peace. 
Jesus banged on about this all through his last discourse with his disciples. The fruit of abiding and remaining in him is that that becomes our experienced reality in here more and more rather than the rare fleeting exception that a soften is. He longs for you to have a soul just overflowing with love and joy and peace. Try like I know many of us are making the decisions that see this as seeing this bubble up a little bit more. And I'm like, just in Jesus' name, by the Spirit of God, would your imagination be filled with what your life would feel like if this was your experienced reality every day? That's God's desire for you. And when you choose to, to, uh, to crucify the flesh, again, verse 24, just the next, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I mean, that's like hardcore. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. He's not saying be true to yourself and follow your heart. He's saying come and die. And on the, but he's come and like you've got to crucify that stuff in the flesh, but on the other side of that is the fullness of life. The story doesn't end on Friday, it ends on Sunday with new life bursting into the world. This is the great the narrative of Easter. And so yet yeah, we don't just go along with what our flesh wants. At times it feels like death where we say no to these things and our flesh is screaming out for it and we crucify that bad boy for the sake of new life that will burst in by doing that. We don't just go along with what we, we choose the wiser, deeper way of Jesus. But how do you do that, right? It's all great theory, but we're all sitting in here going, yeah, great. How the heck do you do that, mate? Because I've been swimming in this meat sack, as the old farrier would call it, for a long time. This is a genuine battle that's going on for all of us. There are zero exceptions in the room. All of us are going through this. Paul's solution is this. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Through that chapter 5, he's like, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. It's like, how do you do that? How do you cultivate the love, joy, and peace, and that's by walking in step with the Spirit. I'm going to unpack in more detail what we mean in real terms by that, but what he's not saying is that you'll is use your willpower, white-knuckle it. Now, there's nothing wrong with willpower. It's awesome when you've got it. But most of the time when I needed it, it wasn't there in my battle with porn. It was like willpower was just gone, another country. And it's like, so like, how the heck am I meant to make choices that honour Jesus and see my soul flourish? Now, if I do have willpower, awesome. I'm going to use it 100%. Again, so we're not dismissing it. It's just unreliable. I mean, if it was enough, we'd all be walking in the victory because we actually want those deeper desires. We want to overcome those strong desires for the deeper desires. Every human being wants that. It's, we have to have something beyond us. Willpower is not enough. We need spirit power. And so the big, big question is like, like, how do we access spirit power? And there's no, I mean, no surprise. Spiritual disciplines, habits, rule of life, accountability, Sunday services, like anything that will position us to receive the life of the Spirit. Like, there's tools that we can use. And I wish that there was some, <laughs> that's cool, man. I wouldn't mind a snack. I've been going for a while. Um, 
here's the truth. Like, guys, his grace is sufficient for every one of you. It doesn't matter what mess you've got yourself into, his grace is sufficient. But now the Bible says, but, but, but God's grace teaches us to live holy lives. So here's what happens. The, the best advice I got when I was going through, working through some pretty big brokenness in my life was this. Run to the one who can make you clean. Let your sin propel you towards God, not away from Him. He would far rather have you messy than not have you at all. He, so you've got to need a habit. Now this is counterintuitive because everything in us has a theology of works that says I've got to reach a certain threshold of goodness before I can go to church or hang out with God. And that's a, that's a broken theology of works. Most of us struggle with the reality of God's grace, but it's only by grace we're saved. And so run to the one who can make you clean. At your most filthy, dirty, messy moment, choose Jesus. And he will come and wash your soul clean and you will feel so undeserving of it. Welcome to what grace feels like. The undeserved grace and goodness and it's the gift of his mercy. It's just, you can't earn it, you can't, it's all, it's all grace. But then you've got to grow up and start learning to live a life of love. To learn a, a mature, like again, this is the great apostolic vision of the New Testament is to see Christ formed in you. To see the habits of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, to learn to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, all that stuff, to increasingly have that happening in your life. Because you're not condemned into holiness, you're loved into holiness. You're not guilted into holiness, you're loved into holiness. So even though it's counterintuitive, hanging out with Jesus every single day, even though you don't feel worthy, is going to help you become a holy person more and more and more. Does it happen overnight? No. No. But it will happen. But it will happen. The formation of our soul is so much more slow than we'd like. We live in a microwave generation that's impatient. But if you keep choosing Him and choosing Him, and you've come to church this morning, well done, everyone's feeling good about that. You keep choosing, you've chosen Him this morning. Something happens over time that sees Christ formed in you. Now, we're going to unpack a whole lot more next week around the things that we can do to crucify the flesh. Um, but ultimately, I'm, I want to encourage you to come under Jesus' authority and to come through the Scriptures out, work through the church, to say yes to living under some authority in your life, to learn to live a life of love that would wisely make, see your soul flourish. A key part, I've come to land in a second with this, but a key part of our apprenticeship to Jesus, again, John Mark, is fighting our flesh and through the practices of Jesus, cultivating the soil of our heart into fertile ground for the Spirit to grow his fruit of love, joy, and peace, etc. I wish, I, honestly, guys, I wish that there was something else. I wish I could, like, I didn't have to challenge you to change your lifestyle, but it's like, Actually hanging out with Jesus as much as that's a battle and trying to do that at least daily. Most of us need to check in a few more, bit more than that. But just having intentional time with him is the thing that sees us filled with his presence and his spirit. And then as you keep doing that, you just want to gratify your spirit and it gets easier, friends. It does. It gets, it's the hope we have. It does get easier. 
After a while, you become more godly. After a while, that choice to make the right call in that moment of temptation, it becomes second nature. After a while. But you've got to keep fighting. You've got to keep choosing it. And, and this is why, again, we're just held in his arms of grace all the way through that journey. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he good? Uh, I've got to say this quote. God's for, sorry, but I've already mentioned this, but I've got to say it. It's so good. God's for, this is Dane Ortland. God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. Isn't that amazing? Isn't this weird theology that says that God hates sin? He runs and embraces sinners. Of course he hates sin because it wrecks your life. But he just loves embracing sinners. <laughs> and he loves like his love just permeating all those parts of us, even those parts that we're ashamed of. And that's when the Spirit starts residing more and more. And you start to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, walk in step with him, learn to live a life in rhythm. All of that starts happening as you get close to Jesus. And so this morning... Uh, I want to encourage us on a, on a few things. Firstly, I'd love us to, um, to uh, I'd love to encourage every one of us to get in the habit of running to the one who can make us clean. And you can do that this morning. If there's stuff that's on your conscience or you're ashamed of or whatever, can I just like run to the one who can, this, in, your, in your own heart, it's like, I choose you, Jesus. And just let him love you. Just let him pour out his grace on you. He's, he loves, it's his favorite thing. It's for the joy set before him. He enjoyed the cross. What's that joy? The joy of us receiving his grace and mercy and feeling clean and whole again. He loves it. And so, um, but he, he's a gentleman. It's an invitation. It's not a demand. That's your call. But I, I've got my pom-poms out this morning. <laughs> Run to Jesus. Yes, you can. You can do it. Run to Jesus. Whatever. <laughs> I'll make up a better ditty in time, but you know. Um, but, um, but this morning, um, as we come into this place of faith and, and an atmosphere of worship, I do want to invite us to invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us so that we'd be led by the Spirit.